Would you stand tonight? the world but it couldn't fill me 
man's empty praise and treasures the pain are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Yes, Lord, there's nothing better than you, Lord, there's nothing better than you, Lord, there's nothing, nothing is better than you, Lord, I know it's true. Well, I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Cause the God of the mountain. He's the God of the valley, and there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again.
Everybody just raise your hand right now as a mode of worship. I was standing over there and there's a scripture that I've been studying lately and I wanted to get it right in my mind. It's Psalm chapter 3 verse 3. And in it it's David. He's running from his very own son Absalom who's about to run him out of the country. David is facing all kinds of trouble and tribulation and circumstance. He's on the run. And he uses this quote in there. He says of the Lord, Lord, you are my shield, you are my glory, and you are the lifter of my head. And I was thinking, we are living in a time in this nation in which it seems like the church, it seems like Christians, we're persecuted, we're on the fringe, we're marginalized, and that's on a national front. And then individually and as our families, we're going through all kinds of things, sickness, People struggling with COVID, loss of jobs, loss of income. All kinds of issues are coming against us. And I just felt impressed to the Lord to tell somebody tonight that the Lord will be your shield in your time of battle. It speaks of the time of battle. That's what a shield does. He is your protection. And then it moves on to another state where it says, Lord, you are my glory. In other words, the glory, talking about the presence of the Lord, the glory is that elevation, that place of elevation, that thing of which you esteem the most. David is saying, I esteem you the very most. Think of it this way, that, that, that thing in your life, that person in your life that you esteem, that you value, you are ascribing unto them glory. But David says, in spite of everything, God, you are my glory. You are my glory. And then he goes on and he even addresses he even addresses it from a standpoint of what's going on in the mind. He says, Lord, you are the lifter of my head. I, I, I had to think of it like this. That if you have a child, if you have one of your kids come to you, that they are beat down with the issues of life. They're overwhelmed with the issues of life. Maybe, maybe they've made a mistake. Maybe they've done something wrong. And they come to you out of a sense of being overwhelmed and their head is down. How healing is it when the father can go up to their son and say, no, 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 lift your head. Lift your head. It's going to be okay. Where they grab him under the chin and they lift him up and say, it's going to be all right. I want to tell somebody tonight, it's going to be all right. I don't know what your battle is. I don't know what your struggle is, but the Lord's going to be your shield. He's going to be your glory. And he's going to lift your head in this day and time in which we live. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. The Lord, right now as we... Enter into this time of worship, of tithe and offering. Lord, we just want to remind the people that we have the boxes at the back that they can continue to give online. But Father, right now, we don't want this to disrupt or inter interrupt anything that we have going on, Lord, that you have going on in tonight's service. We're just praying, God, that you're going to be with us in the rest of this service, Lord. We're praying for Brother Zach tonight as he brings the word that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive. God, that you would anoint him. God, use your vessel tonight. And Lord, as right now as we enter into our time of declaration, God, as they go ahead and put that on the over here, we want to speak that with faith. We want to speak it with a sense of, of conviction. We want to speak it from our heart with a sense of urgency. Father, we do this in the name of Jesus. Church, I'm going to ask you to repeat this declaration with me if you would. Lord, today by faith, we declare that we are walking in the manifestation season. As your faithful remnant, we will house your very presence. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We're no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We will not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we will give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We will live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. We declare your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise tonight.
lift the name of Jesus in this room right now. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. You, be, you may be seated if you can this night. I almost said morning. It's not morning. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll get into the word. Lord, I'm thankful. Thankful for this book. I pray that me personally and these this people in this place would not um, lose sight that the Bible is the word of God that it is a treasure, that is something to be studied again and again, that it is alive, that it's rich and it's relevant. We're thankful for it. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not take this book for granted. Let us not take Jesus for granted. Let us not take this ability to be able to gather and to open this book freely for granted. I just pray in these moments we have the rest of this night that your will would be done and that you would use me in spite of myself to accomplish what you have for us tonight. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, the name above every name. Amen. I've been um, in church all my life. As long as I can remember, uh, I came to this youth group when I was 15 years old. I'm 30 now. I've been here for 15 years. Um, I've been the student pastor now for six and a half years, going on seven years, June 1. And over this time, I've been in church, been in youth group, had students in my youth group and watched them and their walk and their journey of life. Uh, there's a lot of people that just seem to just come and go. It's like they're here one day, they were here, they might have even been serving faithfully in different capacities, they were here when the doors were open, they were even maybe telling other people about Jesus, but now, today, when I look, those people aren't around here anymore, and I don't just mean here, I mean they're not involved in any church whatsoever that I can see or speak of. And when you were to look at their life and the fruit of their life, I would say you, could, you can judge a tree by its fruit and you can see that they are ruled and they're producing fruits of the flesh, like Galatians 5 talks about, more so than fruits of the Spirit. It seems they've left the faith. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It seems like they've dropped out of this race. And when you see that, is it not disheartening? And don't you ask questions. Don't we want to find out? Don't you want to find out why is this? Who is to blame? What is to blame? And what happened? And we Christians, we're really good at coming up with excuses, right? If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, that college, it got to them. You know, they went to college and they teach all kinds of things that contradict Scripture and it got in their head and it got them all messed up. And now look at them or we'll make excuses and say, they just gotten involved in the wrong relationship. They just dated the wrong guy. They just dated the wrong girl. And now look at them. Or they just got around the wrong temptations. They got around the wrong things and they gave in to the pressure of different substances. And, and now, now look at them. And there's just so many reasons we come up with for people. And so many excuses we make. For people, because we care about them and we don't understand sometimes, and we want to know what's to blame, who's to blame. Can I give you some biblical insight? Can I give you just a little spoiler of tonight's sermon? They are the ones to blame. More specifically, I could see your stares like, what? More specifically, their faith. 
is what to blame. Their faith was the problem. When we see this happen, when we see this take place, when we see people that just seems like one day they just fall off the face of the earth, one of two things, they either never really had faith in Jesus Christ or at some point along their race, they started placing their faith in something or in someone else. Another way to put it, and this is where we're going tonight in Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. We'll get there momentarily here in just a second. They either never really built their life on Jesus Christ and his teachings, the word of God, or at some point they started to build their life on something or someone else. Church, their faith is the problem. It's their faith. Tonight, let's go to the final parable that we see in what we call a collection, the Sermon on the Mount, a collection of sermons of Jesus Christ. This is the final one, the final parable, the final words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount anyway, and it's put here on purpose. It's put here purposefully. It's the title of tonight's sermon. We're going to talk about building your house, building your faith, building your life. The title of tonight's talk is The Firm Foundation. The firm foundation, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, the firm foundation. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The Sermon on the Mount is focused on so much for good reason. It's full of earth-shattering, life-changing, and transforming upside-down way to live truth. And Jesus, or excuse me, this parable is put at the end of the Sermon on the Mount for good reason. In summary, it's telling us. He's telling the people that were listening to him while he taught. He's telling the readers who have read this for the past over a thousand years. He's saying this. He's saying, if you will build your life on me, in my words, then no matter what comes your way, your life will not fall apart. You will not leave the faith. You will stand strong because your faith is standing on top of the firm foundation, Jesus Christ. And that's my main point. Number one tonight is this. I've got four of them. Number one, Jesus Christ is the firm foundation that we build our lives upon. He is the firm foundation. I'm not a master builder Don't even invite me over to build a Lego house. Uh, You don't want that. If something goes wrong at your house, I'm sorry, I love you, but don't call me because I can't help you. I'll pray about it. I'll pray for your furnace, but I'm not going to do a good job fixing it. I'll look at it, but that's about it. That's about it. So anyway, just some free information for you. If you call me and you got that, I can't help you. Anyway. It doesn't take an engineer, it doesn't take a scientist, a genius to figure out that the foundation of any home, any structure is the most important pivotal part of the home. It's not the roof. You might think the roof is what keeps the elements out. It's not the roof. It's not the floor. It's not the cabinets. Who wants nice cabinets? Everybody wants nice cabinets, but that's not the most vital part of the house. It's not the kitchen, the foundation is the number one vital part of your home. Why? Simply this, it's what supports your home, right? It's like this is almost common sense. It's where all the weight goes. It bears all the weight. That's its primary purpose of the foundation is to hold up your house. Without a proper foundation, every beautiful thing you put in your home those beautiful, that beautiful tile shower, those granite countertops. If you have granite countertops, props to you. You have succeeded. Anyway, 
You can do all these incredible things to your home, but if you don't have a good foundation, it's not going to matter. It won't be long before that foundation, things begin to sink, storms come, floods come, wind comes, and your house, your weak foundation, cracks will begin to develop, things will begin to fall apart, fall out of place, maybe even wash away. Without a good foundation, none of those things will matter, but with a proper foundation, no matter what, floods come, earthquakes even come, that wasn't that long ago. And then you guys went, all, went out and bought earthquake insurance, right? Some of you. But the home stays even and it stays supported when the foundation is firm. It's the same way in our lives. Jesus Christ is that firm foundation. And no matter what comes, no matter what, no matter how bad things get, if Jesus Christ is your foundation, your life will not come tumbling down to the ground. Your faith won't fail because it is founded in Jesus Christ, who is the firm foundation. Your life will not fall into pieces, but instead you will remain standing tall. Jesus Christ is the rock. In verse 24. Another thing about the foundation, that's where you start building your house. If you are maybe you're a weirdo and you just built the shell of your house and you placed it on your foundation after you built the house, that'd be kind of weird. But that's where you begin. And it's the same with Jesus. He's foundational in the sense of that is where everything begins. That's where following him begins. Life is found in Jesus. Life begins with Jesus. It's not found anywhere else. It's not found nowhere else. It can't begin with anyone else. Everything begins with Jesus Christ. Following Jesus began in your life when the Holy Spirit came and he visited you and he led you to Jesus. And then Jesus Christ takes you And restores your relationship with God the Father. Jesus Christ is where it all begins. He is the foundation. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's talk about building the church. And this is what he said. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the firm foundation. Number two, second thing I want you to get out of this tonight. The storms of life reveal what lies at the foundation of our lives. The storms of life reveal what really your foundation is, what it's built with. These past two years have revealed whose foundations are truly in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's also revealed whose foundations weren't. God gives us a beautiful gift. When he breathes the breath of life into our nostrils, in our mother's womb, when we're conceived, he gives man a gift. He says, you can build your life however you want to build it. God gave us a free will, and he lets us choose how we build this life. It's a gift. It's a wonderful gift. We get to decide what our career is. We get to decide that. We get to decide if we're going to build, buy, or rent a house. That's your choice. We get to decide what vehicle we drive. We get to decide who we marry. We get to decide when we are going to try to have kids or when we're going to stop. That's our decision. We get to decide the friends we have. We get to decide the church we go to. We get to decide who we look up to in the faith and who we just kind of don't. This is a great privilege given from God. And all those things I just listed are incredible privileges. They're good things. Am I right? Are you with me? Are you alive out there? Okay. They're good things. But all those good things can become possibly detrimental things 
in our lives if we make them foundational things. Did you hear what I said? All these good things, if they're foundational things, if they're foundational things, they can possibly be detrimental to our lives. Let me, under, let me explain. None of those things I just listed, you can choose what you want to choose, but none of those things I just listed are guaranteed to remain, period. You might not get that promotion that you've been going after for 15 years. You might not. You might even get fired from your job. Your Ford will break down. Just let that ruminate. Just let that saturate in this place. You may not have been able to have kids. You might not be able to have kids right now. Your spouse might not be here as long as you are. Your friends might abandon you in your time of need. The church may close its doors. The people in your life that you place in high esteem might fail you. They might even leave or quit the faith. It's possible, people. These things are instrumental. They're important. They're great. And when things happen to them, it hurts. It's painful. It's a lot to get through. And it can even be hard to get through. It can even take time. Both men in this passage, one was wise, one was foolish. What happened to both of them? And it's guaranteed to happen to you. Storms will come. You don't have a choice. Now what really stinks is when storms come and it's your fault. That's, that stinks. But even if that's not the case, storms are going to come. It's going to happen. In parts of your life, these things that we build our lives on, that are part of our lives that we're building, they might crumble. They might fall to the side. They might disintegrate. The question is, when the storms come and the damage is done, are you going to remain standing? That's the question. Will you keep the faith or will your faith fall apart? If you don't remain standing, church, the foundation of your faith was not Jesus. Did you hear what I said? Did you hear me? If you don't remain standing, your foundation was not Jesus. And just like the parable tells us, lay, laying your foundation with anything else on anyone else other than Jesus is foolish. It's foolish. And I've said it before and it bears repeating. Craig Rochelle says this. This is what he says. You'll never know Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. And some of you have gotten real close. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's in those times of great despair and need that our foundations are re revealed and we really know. I'm so glad I put my faith. I built my life on Jesus. He is the firm foundation. Verse 24. Let's keep moving. I can spend more time there, but let's keep moving. This is what it says. Let's go back here. And we'll get into point number three. And there's only one more after that, but just don't get too excited because this is the longest one. So just calm down. Calm down. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Words of mine. Say words of mine. Just make sure you're alive. Words of mine. Number three. Point three, we build our lives by abiding, obeying, following God's word. There's something about verse 24 that if you don't get a hold of it, if you don't grasp it, you won't grasp anything I'm saying. You've got to understand this. When Jesus said this to these people, and when it's written right here, what does he mean? Does Jesus mean, when he says words of mine, Hear these words of mine. Does he mean just the words 
that he, that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, that collection of sermons? Did Jesus mean perhaps every word that he spoke while he was on the earth that's recorded in the gospel, the four gospels? Did Jesus perhaps mean every single word in the Bible, the word of God, the entire book? Or did Jesus mean something else? Church, number three, option three is the answer. When Jesus says these words of mine, he's not just talking about this teaching that's powerful. He's not just talking about the the verbal words he spoke and that were recorded. He's talking about the entire word of God. You've got to get this. You've got to get a hold of this. And this is where people get tripped up. This is what happens. I'm, we're getting somewhere. Say we're getting somewhere. We're getting there. you got to get a hold of this. Listen, the fact that Jesus Christ was a real person is undeniable. No credible historian that has any credit to his name can deny that at least Jesus Christ was a real man. There's more evidence for Jesus Christ than Genghis Khan, Napoleon Bonaparte. The list goes on. There's also really no credible argument that Jesus didn't have a huge impact on earth and that he didn't say some things that were pretty good rules to live by, that he wasn't a loving and compassionate man. There's not a lot of ground to stand on for people who disagree with that. And you'll even hear unbelievers say, I just heard atheists a few weeks ago say this, I, I, I don't have a problem with Jesus, I just have a problem with the church and and I'll get into that in a minute, but a lot of unbelievers have no problem with some of what Jesus said, might even believe that he was a real person. They do have a problem with the fact that Jesus said, hey, I'm the son of God. Hey, I was born of a virgin. That doesn't really compute with unbelievers. They don't really believe that he died and rose on the third day in his own power. They don't really believe that. And unbelievers and atheists, they want to just say that this Bible isn't valid, that it's outdated, and that it is no effect. It's just words that might be good to live by or they might not be. People want to just disregard what they want to and keep what they want to. Now, this is expected among unbelievers. I don't know why we expect unbelievers to agree with everything we believe in. I, I, I run into Christians like that, and I, it just doesn't compute with me. Like, if I didn't believe that God was real and I read some of this, I would be like, you know what I'm saying? But why do people who claim to have faith in Jesus decide that they can pick and choose what they want to follow in what they want to believe. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Hear me. To be a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, you must, capital M-U-S-T, you must believe that the Word of God is infallible. That means it has no error. It's unfailing. It's faultless. It's flawless. I'll say it again. If you do not believe that the Bible is infallible, you are not a Christian. Do you hear me? Some of you hear me. I like how a pastor that I like to listen to sometimes, Mark Driscoll, puts it this way. He says, in the faith, there are things called national borders and state borders. Or he'll put it another way. We'll just use national and state. There are open-handed issues and there are closed-handed issues. And this is what he says. National borders are those things you have to believe to be a Christian. And once you've crossed over those, you're no longer a Christian. State borders are issues we can disagree on and still be Christians. Let me give you some examples. A national border. God is Trinitarian. 
God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a national border. That Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. And not only that, he died and he rose again three days later. That's a national border, people. That salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Another one we just stated, and we could state more, but we won't. The Word of God is perfect and it's trustworthy. Some state borders. Is seven-day creation literal or is it spanned over thousands of years? That is a state border. How to exercise spiritual gifts. That is a state border. Modes of church government. That is a state border. Styles of worship music. That is a state border. God the Father, Jesus the Son, if God says it, Jesus says it. He might not have spoke it out of his mouth, but he agrees with it. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity all the time. If one says it, they all agree. So enough of this, I'm just going to abide by the words of Jesus and I'm just going to just disregard some of that other stuff that I'm really not a fan of. Enough of is enough. Enough is enough. If, if this word says it, God says it. And if God says it, Jesus said it or he agrees with it. And so does the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. But listen, people, there's a lot of people who get tripped up right here. It's crazy. To me, people that will look you in the face and say, I'm a Christian, but this is where they get tripped up. They don't want to believe everything that the Bible says. They don't want to follow all of God's word. They just want to follow what Jesus spoke in the Gospels. And there's a parts that they just want to live by and parts that they don't. That's just not where it works. And Christians all across this world have been caving to pressure to not believe that the Bible's infallible. They've been caving like crazy. If you read the Bible, there's a lot of things that are hard to swallow. If you're reading the Bible and you're not being convicted of your own wrongs, you're... you're I don't know what Bible you're reading, but I think it's your own version. I think it's the me version. There are things in this Bible that God plainly says. It's not up for debate. He plainly says it's not righteous. It's plain. It's written plainly. But culture has decided that it's outdated and that it doesn't matter. And it's not understanding of the times. And so what is the church in some Places done, they've bowed to that. And if you're not careful, you'll do the same thing. Did you hear me? It's really easy to say, you know, it's not, it's not acceptable, it's not righteous for someone to be in a relationship with someone that's the same sex. That's really easy till your son or your daughter comes up to you and says, Hey, mom, hey dad, I'm attracted to so and so. It's really easy. Until that happens. It's awfully quiet out there. we got to stop trying to rewrite the Bible. Insert or exclude what we want. It's not okay. It's not acceptable. Here's some things. Here's some common things. And I'm going to hit a lot of people in this place. Eventually, I figure. Just some things that people want. Even I would like a couple of these to, to not be in the Bible. I'll just start with the ones that I wish weren't there. And then we'll go to the, to the meaner ones, okay? They're not really meaner. They're the same. But they don't hurt me as much. Anyway, Matthew 5, or excuse me, Mark 11 says... And wherever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is, who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Unforgiveness. Man. You talk about not wanting something to be in there. 
I wish I didn't have to forgive everyone that wronged me. Anybody else? But that's not the gospel. That's not God's word. How about adultery? How about that? The Bible says if you just lust after someone, Matthew 5, that you committed adultery with them in your heart. Man, I wish that wasn't in there. Man, a lot of people struggle with that. How about covetousness? The 10th commandment. Don't covet. Don't desire deeply. Don't desire to possess your neighbor's possessions. I mean, some of y'all need to stay out of the car lot. Sorry, car dealers. Because you know Dave Scamsey tells you don't buy that car. So you'll get that later, some of you. He's not a scam. It's a joke. Calm down. Some people get really offended when I say that. Call Dave Ramsey, Dave Scamsey sometimes and see what happens. People will pull out a knife. It's bad. Especially Melody BB. She'll do it. Her and Terry Fawn. Anyway, if I get on like Zillow or Realtor.com, it's like I have to, before I do that, I need to fast and pray. Anybody else? Let's talk about some other things that we just don't want to abide by when we see Scripture. Scripture says, and I'm not going to get into it because it would take too long, that sex is meant to be between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. That's what the Bible says. It writes it plainly. It's not to be before marriage. It's not to be with someone of the same sex. It is meant to be between one man and one woman within marriage. That's the way it is. That's God's design. And let's stop trying to rewrite that or change that to fix our feelings or our emotions or our personal experience. I don't care what people's feelings or emotions or personal experiences are. There's right and there's wrong. There are churches, there are whole denominations who have bowed to this. They've just said, you know, that was good for then, but now it's different. There are churches who say, LGBTQIA, we stand with you. We affirm what you're doing. It's happening. Go look. Go look and see how those denominations are doing. They're not doing very well. There are people who don't want to speak up on things like, like abortion that do not aligns with God's word, and it is murder. And, and understand this, like, it's really easy to throw around words like homosexuality in the church, LGBTQIA, and abortion. It's really easy for people to do that, and it's like one of those trigger words for some people, and some people get really mad, and then some people might applaud. You know what I'm talking about? I just want you to understand, like, that's not what I'm going for, and that's not the point of what I'm trying to say, and you'll understand that. Here in a minute, if you don't get that right now, I'm not trying to target anybody, but what I want you to know, if you're reading the Bible through with the church this year, I just want you're about to find out, if you didn't already know this, the Bible gets all of us. It gets us all. None of us are immune. It gets us all. None of us measure up. Salvation's in Christ alone. Forgiveness is found in Him and Him alone. And no one is too far gone or done too much. That's the beautiful thing. It points out our sin. It shows us that we're wrong, but it doesn't leave us hanging. It doesn't stop there. The church cannot stop there. We can't just drag people out and point out their sin. There needs to be power and authority in us. And the Spirit needs to be at work within us and in our speech. That when we talk to people about the Lord, we don't have to affirm what they do. That the Holy Spirit will convict them. It will show them they're wrong. But it don't stop there. It leads them to forgiveness and redemption and freedom. God doesn't stop there. And it's beautifully... There's a beautiful picture of this in John 8, 1 through 11. And I'll just read it quickly. I, I, and I, there, this is, some of you know where I'm going. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I'll just read it really quickly. And this, the, these 11 verses, could, you could preach a, a sermon series on them. I'm just going to pull out one thing. This is what it says. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone this woman. So what do you say? 
This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus never affirmed this woman's sin. He never said, What you were just caught in is okay. That never happened. It didn't take place. In fact, at the end, what did he say? He said, go and sin no more. That's what he said. When Jesus spoke, and in that moment, with all those people around waiting on Jesus to just be ready to belittle her, to get caught up in some kind of trap, maybe to just try to trip him up, whatever they were expecting, Jesus stood there, and he was full of authority. He was full of power. He knew truth. In that moment, she felt condemnation from the crowd, but there was something deeper, something more powerful at work. The Spirit of God was at work. She felt a force maybe she never felt before, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that didn't just point out her sin, but it pointed to a way of escape, a way of forgiveness, a way of acceptance, a way of repentance, a way of restoration, a way of redemption, a way to be set free. Church, the world doesn't need us to affirm people's sin. No one needs that church that says sin is okay. But we also don't need a church that's just so quick to point out everybody's flaws. And that's all we do. It's okay to say sin is sin. But we can't stop there. That's not the biblical way. That's not the Christ-like way. That's not what Jesus did. That's not the gospel. That's not the story of the Word of God. We've got to remember, church, as Oscar Wilde said, every saint has a past, but every sinner has a future. We've got to remember, as George Whitfield said, that Jesus came down to save us, not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin. Let us not get so quick to scream from the rooftops when someone's wrong without love and without showing them the way of redemption. Let that not be us. Let that not be you, church. And I want to add one more sub-point before I move on to the fourth point, which is the shortest point, so you can take a breath of relief. Remember, this point. We build our lives by abiding in the word of God, obeying, following, and keeping God's word. No one can do that for you. Nobody can do that for you. You've got to know God's word yourself. You've got to know why you believe what you believe. You've got to know what you believe. You've got to know why you believe it for yourself. And if you don't, then your foundation is weak. Your foundation is weak. There are people who just trust what I say or trust what Pastor Miller says or what Pastor Randy says. Do you know how dumb that is? It's dumb. This has to be your own. You need to read this Bible for yourself. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you read the Bible and you come up with something crazy that no one agrees with, no commentary, no anything, you're the one that's wrong, not everybody else. Pentecostals are kind of bad about that. Amen? Yeah, it's okay. I'm one. I could knock us. I'm one of them. I'm not bad-mouthing Baptist up here. Anyway, if you don't know why you believe what you believe, you're going to be so easily swayed. One way or the other. And people, what we're doing as a church this year, reading the Bible cover to cover, 
do you understand how huge this is? I tell students all the time, I, I wish that I would have read the Bible cover to cover a long time ago. I wish I'd have started doing that 15 years ago and not just a few years ago. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, you're going to be swayed by all kinds of doctrine. People know how to take this word and use it for good, and they also know how to use it for evil. And it's real easy to buy into the evil when you don't understand what the evil is. You need to teach your kids, parents, now how important God's word is. You teach them now. You wonder why your kids are swayed so easily by the world and by culture. It's because maybe you didn't teach them the word of God. Maybe you didn't push them to get in God's word for themselves. And you wonder why they go to college and they leave the faith. Never was their own. Now here's what's going to happen. When you start to push your kids to get in the word, they're going to come to question. They're going to come with questions. They might even say, "I don't know if I believe in this God." And they might bring all these different things that you disagree with. I just want to let you know and give you some insight. It's okay if your kids come to you with questions that are off the wall. It's okay if kids come to you and say, "Hey, I don't know if I believe what you believe." Like people get really scared. Parents get really scared when people start to question their faith. And it is concerning. We need to pray and we need to be there for them. We need to point them to the Word of God. But understand, this is the natural process of someone that is beginning to believe things for themselves and not just because someone told them to. And the earlier you let your kid do that and you just stop saying, hey, just shut up and listen to me because I know what I'm talking about, the better off your kids are going to be when it comes to their faith. I'm not talking about letting kids do what they want to do, but I'm talking about letting your kids ask those big questions and digging into them and letting them own their faith before they go get out on their own. It's incredible how many students turn 16 years old and you don't see them again. And then you see them when they're 30 and they got a story. And their parents raised them in church. They had them in youth. They had them in kids' church. But they didn't go home to a family who put the Word of God as a foundational thing. Am I stepping on any toes? It's awfully quiet in here. The point's not to step on toes. The point is to tell you that the sooner your student grabs their faith for their self, the better off they are. Don't be afraid. Last thing, number four. Back to Matthew 7, 24. What does he say? Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hearing God's word is one thing. Doing what it says is a whole other thing. Both men heard the word. In the parable, understand, both heard it. One followed it, one put it into action. One's life, one's house remained standing, the other did not. There are people who, never, who come to church, hear the word, and they never really... Find Jesus. Or at some point they start to live out or build their life on someone other than Jesus. These people hear sermons. They might shed tears. They might go home and say, man, that was really good. That doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that their foundation is Jesus. None of those things mean anything. If nothing is ever done with it. James 1, 22 through 25, Romans 2, 13. Last thing I'll say, and then I'll, 
I'll close. Your kids don't just need to hear the word of God in Sunday school, kids' church, youth group. And I assure you, they do. They do. And they don't just need to hear you talk about it, but they need to see it in action in your life. You wonder why your kid doesn't believe in God. It's because you talk about him and you take him to church, but man, you don't really look much like Jesus. And we wonder why. Belief is action. Faith is action. You might say you believe God's word. You believe what the pastor preached. But if you don't put it into action, it means nothing. Would you stand with me?